Hey, hey, guys and gals, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by the Go Wild app. See, if you're like me, you post your successes of your hunting and fishing trips on your social media outlets, and undoubtedly, that results in trolls and gutless punks coming on my outlets and telling me to go to hell or telling my kids to get run over by a bus. Um, It's sad what our society has come to. And that's why uh, I've been spending a lot more time on the Go Wild app. See, this is a place created by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen and women. There's no hate. There's no vulgarity. It's just people encouraging each other, sharing in our successes and failures, and uh, and sharing cool stuff like recipes as well. So if you want to be a part of something like that, just go over to the Go Wild app. It's free. Did I mention that? It's free. Download it onto your iPhone or Android and become a part of a very fast-growing community. And I look forward to seeing you over there. Hey, nobody gonna break my soul. Words cut deep, but they can't take hold. I'm shining a lot of new money on the other side. Come out swinging, faces lightning, thinking can't stop me. Mama guns are blazing. Go on, let me live my simple life. I like my women fast. I want a girl who can rock my world when I ain't afraid of shaking glass. Good morning, good morning, Cable Smith. Welcome, everybody, to the Lone Star Outdoors Show, episode four, five, seven. Thank you so much for being here. Man, it is great to be talking all things hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. And uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our longtime presenting sponsors as well. Man, it is a great time to be alive in the great outdoors. I tell you what, temperatures, at least down south, we had some cold weather this past week. Great deer hunting weather. Uh, I tried to get out there. Unfortunately, (laughs) one of the things we're going to get into today is leasing drama. Uh, But before we get ahead of ourselves, here's what we're going to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee. Out of that beat-up old thermos. Yeah, yeah. That green Stanley passed down from your grandfather. It's probably still got mud caked on it from the 2015 duck season. I know mine does. But pour yourself another cup because we're ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we're going to head down to the Gulf of Mexico and find out what our trout, redfish, and flounder are up to. Uh, Man, those flounder should be arriving in droves for their fall spawn. Captain Lynn Gerard, our longtime pal, will jump on with us to give us our saltwater report. Where is he finding them? What's he catching them on? And also, we'll get a migration report on the waterfowl numbers arriving along the Texas coast as well. Then, a uh, special guest, someone who's been on the show quite a few times over the years, and one who uh, I respect as a peer more so than than many others. Uh, I enjoy his show, his books, and his content that he puts out. I think he's a great ambassador for the outdoor community and especially our public lands. But Stephen Ranella, the meat eater, will be here coming up in just a bit. We're going to talk public lands. We're going to talk mountain lion hunting. Um, what's the worst bite of wild game that he's ever put in his mouth? Um, what about politics when it comes to public lands versus the Second Amendment? I mean, that was a big topic here in Texas uh, amid the midterm elections. So all that good stuff. Plus, he's got a brand new book out, The Meat Eater, 
Fish and Game Cookbook, Recipes and Techniques for Every Hunter and Angler, which uh, that actually comes out this month. So we'll discuss that as well. Then at the bottom of the hour, I will let you in on a little drama that I've got going on up at my dear lease in Oklahoma, a place that uh, this is our fourth season on, on this property. And I'm up there last week (laughs) in the property, have no idea that it apparently had been sold. Our landowner turned out to be uh, not quite the nice guy that we all thought he was. Uh, but I'm inside the property and the locks are changed. I can't get out of the property. I'm in there hunting on a property that's been sold and had absolutely no idea. So, you know, there's no way to really protect yourself from that. But what do you do once that happens? Um, man, I mean, there's been calls to attorneys on both sides of my old landowner and the new one. And we're just trying to figure all this out. So I will give you an update on on how that is going and if there could possibly be a happy ending. Because I'll tell you what. Uh, you haven't seen me pissed off until you've ripped my lease out from under me. And not that he doesn't have the right to sell it. It's his land. He absolutely does. But a, just a decent human being would tell you, hey, by the way, I'm thinking about selling this property, which I, it was apparently under contract since last spring when he took our money. Uh, so all of that combined left a very, very bad taste in my mouth. Um, I might even read some of y'all's similar experiences Folks who've leased or owned property, and it goes both ways. Sometimes it's the landowner is the one who gets taken advantage of. Um, but I asked for y'all's responses on Facebook to share some of your experiences, and I might read some of those at the end of the show as well. So stay tuned for the lease horror show edition because that's coming at you here in just a bit. Uh, that's what's on the docket for today. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, oh, yeah. I've got a Hercules Executioner ground blind. I've killed two deer out of this thing already this year. Uh, I've decided to make it the year of the pop-up. And I actually had another one set up on my Oklahoma place with a nice buck on camera. was planning on uh, trying to kill him until all of this stuff went down. Uh, but I've been living out of these things this fall. Absolutely love them. Easy to put up, take down. Great camo pattern. Room enough for two people comfortably. And we're going to give one away. I think they retail for 180 bucks. But that's our November photo of the month grand prize. So send in your best hunting, fishing, outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on our Facebook page or tag me with the LSOS Photo Contest hashtag on Instagram. And we'll get you entered. And then our uh, 12 monthly winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. It's another great grand prize hunting package brought to you by Coons Canyon Ranch. Let's do a quick giveaway. Let's see. How about one of my Lone Star Outdoors show, my AR-15 self-identifies as a BB gun t-shirt. It's got a picture of a AR-15 and then that text on there, and, and I thought it was pretty funny. In the social climate that we live in today, hey, I think all my ARs identify as BB guns, but we'll give away that t-shirt plus a Lone Star Outdoors Show sticker. Everyone who emails the word, let's just say BB gun, BB gun to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. You're entered to win uh, the, uh, the t-shirt and sticker. Let's take a quick break. Coming up next, we head down 
to the Texas coast, see what's going on in those saltwater bays that I love so dearly. Captain Lynn Gerard joins us next. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I don't want to die in the bay of Hank Williams' Cadillac Crucified on a treble clip made of gold Now the music made me quiver I gave it my heart, my soul, and my liver now I'm thinking about turning this rig around and heading home. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts just 30 minutes south of DFW. If you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs, you need to give them a call. Hunts are $250 a hunter for a half-day hunt. That includes 15 birds, and you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is $150 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 to book your hunt today. The south coast of Texas, that's a thin slice of life. It's salty and hard, it is stern as a knife. Where the wind is for blowing up, hurricanes for showing, snakes out of the There's a classic there from Guy Clark, south coast of Texas, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show Power at the Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. As we are rocking and rolling, uh, about to head down to the south coast of Texas for a coastal fishing report. What are the trout, redfish, and flounder up to? Our old friend Captain Lynn Gerard is set to join us here momentarily to give us the uh, lowdown. But first, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. We all know land is the one thing they ain't making any more of, folks, but we all want it. So if you're ready to take that next step and purchase your own piece of paradise, whether that's for hunting, fishing, recreating, running cattle, or just to get the hell out of the big city for a few days, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. They've been doing it for over 100 years. They'd love to help you out. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Uh, all right. Well, let's head down to the Laguna Madre to touch base with our old buddy, my favorite fishing guide, joining us now. Captain Lynn Gerard, how in the world are you, my friend? Well, pretty good. Still have a lot of high water here in the in the Laguna Madre. Is that that's still okay, left? Though. That's left over still from the hurricane. Yeah, it just really hasn't gone down. It's been a really strange year, huh. but it's uh, it's making it makes the fishing pretty good. I mean, we're we're just uh, fishing in different spots, different areas. Yeah. Well, and uh, we've talked about previously really a- how that. Uh, how that hurricane really revitalized the marine ecosystem down there in that part of the world. And um, it it seems like, from what I know, that you're going to tell us the fishing's uh, been pretty hot. 
it has been, but the, it's so strange when you have this high water because you know a lot of places where you usually fish, you know, like in these little holes and stuff like down toward Baffin and stuff, they're just it's so high. There's like most of the fish are really scattered, but the fishing around here where the you know toward the Packery Channel and stuff has been excellent. The redfish are you know starting to move out and they're hanging right around. The flounder are starting to show up. This next cold spell, you know, it's going to make a big difference too. But because what it is is the the redfish and the black drum and the flounder they all spawn in the winter time and when that you know when they feel that first big change in the water then it kind of tells them to get ready to go spawn and they start eating everything in sight. Mm-hmm. So it makes makes for good fishing. Crazy though, we've been catching snook and all kinds of crazy fish and. It's, uh, we even had some sharks in the Laguna Madre, some black tips of school came in with the high water, and that was really strange. And, and what are they? They, what weren't, are the... they weren't, they weren't, giant, but there was a, you know, they were 24, 28 inches. They were just you know, the little schoolies, but they were still, it was kind of different when you're fishing for trout and all of a sudden you're, you know, some of your line keeps breaking, you're high, and then all of a sudden you <laughs> figure it out. There was a, you know, but yeah, it was little crazy little sharks and stuff in the water. It's time to either move or or redo your lines, huh? Yeah, but it you know that was only a freak. It was only a freak time, though. You never know. Yeah. But other than that, catching some real nice trout. It's just it's just uh, and we're sight casting big schools of drum in the afternoon, which is fun, where you just sneak up on the big schools and they're right on the surface, and, and you put a little tiny piece of shrimp in front of their nose, and sometimes they take it, sometimes they don't, and. It's just really, it's it's really fun. You can limit out pretty pretty easily too, though. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you can fill your freezer up pretty pretty well. well so, but, what are you typically? What depth are you fishing in the Laguna Madre compared to what depth you're having to fish right now? Well, we're fishing the actually we're fishing from the deeper water to the shallow water, uh-huh. and it's just that you're fishing areas that are usually almost um, you know too too shallow to get to. Okay. In other words, we're just uh, just kind of just kind of compensate for it, and it's just it's just uh, I don't know, it's just kind of weird feeling because the water is so high, it's all you know, it's all up to the dock. Well, everything's shifted, then. the fish have shifted. You know, their traditional haunts are a lot deeper, so they're like you said, they're they're going shallower. Yeah, and it's just you just kind of compensate for that, but it it's just really a lot of fun too because you're we're getting huge you know boxes of fish. I mean, fill your freezer for sure. And also, we've been going offshore a little bit with the northwest winds, where you know catch a lot of snapper too. Uh-huh. I'll just send you a couple of pictures of that. That's kind of fun. Well, so and, uh, talk about what you're having the most luck with as far as bait uh, for both trout and redfish. Well, we're still using. We still get some piggy perch now and then, and there's still some croaker around. But usually, the croaker getting a little bit too big. And actually, there's a lot of croaker in the water that people are catching to eat right now. It's that time of year. Mm-hmm. So the piggy perch, if you can find them, it's the best, but mostly live shrimp. And I just noticed that now they're having trouble getting the, they're you know getting the live shrimp that where they you know where they buy it for bait. And it was a big article about it where they're they think there's some kind of a, you know some kind of a toxic thing with the bait that they're bringing in for you know the, the frozen shrimp that they bring in from all over the world almost. And um, and so they're kind of, kind of, they're, they're really, it's going to be hard to find shrimp here pretty quick. Hmm. So that's, that's really odd too. Tying a gulp then. Yeah. So, but no problems, no worries. And like I said, it's just perfect weather right now. We have, it's not too cold. It's, you know, the perfect, 
you know, 70 to 80 degree weather, and it's just really good time to fish right now. And let me ask you this. Haven't had, haven't had any ducks come down yet, though. We haven't had that cold front to move a lot of birds down. Huh. We do like to go hunting, too. We do a little cast and blast. No redheads showing up yet, huh? Not in a big, not in a big, you know, big flocks yet. It's just mostly just, you know, scattered. They're coming down. They'll probably come down with this, you know, next cold front that we get. Yeah. So, like 90% of the the continental redhead population winters on the uh, Texas coast and into Louisiana. And, sure do. And, you know, you get the same thing with pintails. A lot of those winter uh, in the, Cali- uh, I forget which delta it is, but it's in California. Uh, but then the essentially the vast majority, once again, come down to the Gulf of Mexico. So, Isn't that weird, though? Because, of the, you know, you'd think that they would be hanging out with the, you know, more of the puddle ducks, they call them, you know, with the puddle ducks compared yeah. to the, the sea ducks. And, uh, and it's always fun because, you know, you can always tell that because they come straight off the water where the, where the, with the uh, you know the redheads and stuff, you know they have to get a, you know, they have to get going before they can get up. So you can uh, you know you can pick them out pretty easily. Oh yeah. You don't get the real big you know big differential species like the wigeon and stuff till toward the end. Mm-hmm. So. Well, at least the but, pintail limit went back up to two for this season anyway. So that's uh two pintails, two redheads. You guys are, you know, at least you get four birds instead of three like last year. Basically, I know you get some teal and stuff mixed in, but for the big ducks anyway. Yeah, that's very true. And like I said, once you know, toward the end of the year, then we'll get our our spoonies and our you know they they always come in toward the end too, and the widgeon and everything. Delicious you know, saltwater spoonie. I don't know if there's anything that tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, those other spoonies are colorful anyway. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I've got one on the wall. It's uh, I'm not gonna lie, it is my favorite duck mount that I have. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I call them. I, know, I call so, them a Hollywood. They are really cool looking. They are real cool looking. They're Hollywood. Hollywood spoonies, we call them. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a duck <laughs> of many names: Hollywood, uh, Smiling, Mallard, Spoonbill. A lot of people just call them trash ducks. I don't. I, I think they're <laughs> beautiful. And once yeah, they go in the true. the grinder, you know, or the jerky pile, you can't tell the difference anyway. Um, back to the fishing, <laughs> though. True. I want to ask you about topwater action early in the mornings and whether. Uh, first of all, what, if you're having any luck with topwater plugs, I know you like to throw the uh, Sarah Spook Junior. We do, yeah, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. We do right now, and then of course we're going to start using the the corkies and stuff as the water cools down. We'll start bouncing the bottom, but right now we're trying to really target the flounder because they're we're way overdue. But a lot of the a lot of the guys that gig the flounders, which they can't gig right now in, in the month of November. You know, mostly in our area because it's the you know the time when they start moving out to the Gulf. With the water so high, a lot of the areas that we you know usually gig in and stuff like that are, are just really deep, mm-hmm. and it's just uh, really haven't seen a big movement of the flounder yet. So, but like do, I said, do they typically uh, will they show up with that first big cold front? Yes, they will. They'll start moving out. The that internal clock they have tells them you know it's time to get going. And so they'll they'll school up just like you you know you wouldn't you think a flounder that's on the bottom doesn't move around a lot but boy they sure they migrate just like you know just like redfish I mean it's just the same thing because mm-hmm. they have because they have to go out to the Gulf to spawn mm-hmm. and you, you you're thinking all of a sudden you find a school of flounder you're thinking my goodness you know what are they doing here and then all of a sudden they're gone the next day they're moving so and it's uh, a lot of people love that you know that flounder is probably one of the favorite favorite dishes there is of course. oh yeah. Can't beat stuffed flounder. No, let me, I know that's cool. Let me ask you this, Captain Lynn: Is if you had 
the ability and say you got to play God for a day to draw up the perfect weather conditions for a day of bay fishing. Give me the cloud cover, give me the wind, um, all that good stuff. What is your ideal day? I'd love a southeast wind because you know, 85% of the wind we usually get is a southeast. And I like the southeast wind and, you know, the temperature in the 70s and about a 50, 10 to 15 mile an hour wind just to keep the water moving and, and choppy a little bit. That's perfect. And I just, you know, get in the water's, you know, just right with an outgoing tide sometimes. Sometimes people like the incoming tide. Well, what about so that, cloud cover for you? I like a, I, I don't, when we're, when we're sight casting, of course, you know, you want, you want a little bit of sun, sunlight. So I kind of like the scattered, scattered clouds. Okay. So that way you, know, you can spot the fish and they still don't get you know, too overexposed, in other words. Mm-hmm. And so you can spot that big school, of, big school of reds or big school of drum and you can, you know, you can stay with them when you can, you know, when you have a little bit of this total cloud cover a lot of times, you know, you, it, it, you know, the glare and stuff will, will knock you off the fish a little bit. Yeah. Once you do hook a fish, a lot of times those, that school will scatter, but not far. And so, you know, you want to stay with them. And there was a fun, there was, there was a crazy video I saw the other day. And he had right in the intercoastal, right near the, um, right near the Packery Channel where the, where the jetties go out. There must have been 15,000 redfish in between the channels. And there was a guy in a boat. There was no other boats around. And he was, there were so many fish. The guys on the jetties were hooking up and limited out instantly. But there were so many fish, he was dangling a spoon on the water and just, you know, on the end of his pole, and the redfish were coming up and breaking water trying to get to that spoon. I mean, that's how many <laughs> there were. It was just nuts. Huh. It was such a cool video. By the time I got there, of course, they were gone. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, well, that, that was really that, fantastic. It was crazy. That day that you drew up, as far as the ideal conditions, that's a far cry from uh, when we made that run up to Baffin and on the way back. A storm started and just beat us to hell on that. <laughs> it took like an hour and a half. I need to get back that day. I know that was brutal. Yeah. Well, that one time when we found the trout right there, pretty close. That was a fast four limits we had, and that actually was the limit. The limit was ten trout. I think we had our. I think we had forty trout or whatever it was, and that was a that was a pretty fun day that day. Absolutely, and and you don't run to Baffin that often. You don't have to. You find big fish a lot closer uh, to where you yeah, put in I'm there. The only, I'm one of the only guys that fishes all year round. And, you know, I stay close. I got a, you know, good reputation of finding some of these little honey holes that, that you know, people aren't used to finding, of course. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of a, kind of a, I always like to have the most fish and use the less gas. It's yeah. kind of my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> well, Captain Lynn, if somebody wants to find you, of course, um, first of all, tell them that the Lone Star Outdoors show sent them, sent you, and you will get a, uh, a nice little discount. Um, and you can find Captain Lynn at CaptainLinsFishing.com, right? And we're also launching now. We're launching at Marker 37, which is being rebuilt after the hurricane. Huh. And, it's, uh, and it's right in the midst of, you know, everywhere we where we fish. And they have a real great fish cleaner named Chris there, too, also. Is that Clem? Uh, <laughs> right next to Clem's. Marker 37 yeah. is the one next to Clem's. Is Jimi uh, Hendrix still re- working there? Yeah, he sure is. It's not really Jimi Hendrix; it's his doppelganger. But uh, he's he's the guy that gets your bait for you. And a million rings. He has a million rings. Yeah, <laughs> a spitting image of Jimmy, right on. Um, you can also but, find Captain Lynn on Facebook as well, and you'll get a. Um, he has hotel discounts too, so when you give him a call, ask him about that. He will get you set up with a place to stay. And Captain Lynn, always a pleasure, my friend. We appreciate you jumping on and talking a little bay fishing with us. 
And we'll get on the water soon, too. All righty. All right. Take later. care. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Bye-bye. Well, there he goes, our good friend, Captain Lynn Gerard. Definitely our most regular guest on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I don't know how many appearances he's made, but uh, it's been quite a few over the years. As I truly love talking saltwater fishing, and he's about as good as they get down there on the Texas coast. That segment of the show proudly brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. If you haven't seen the new Pulsar Helion, you need to check it out. It's the monocular that I've got in my pack no matter what I'm hunting. If it's legal in the state I'm in, I'm using it because under the cover of darkness, everything is illuminated. You can see every animal with a pulse. I'm not kidding you. If it has blood running through its veins, you're going to see it. And why is that important? Because you're not going to blow animals out of the area or maybe you're going to find animals to pursue once the sun comes up. It's the Pulsar Helion. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. Tell them I sent you. That's right, on the website there. Use that promo code Lone Star and you'll save 20% off your order and get free shipping. Can't beat that deal. We'll be right back with one of our oldest friends. He doesn't really need an introduction. Stephen Ronella of Meat Eater joins us after the break. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cause it's a Texas thing. Long necks and a western swing. It's the river walking Barton Springs. And a cold old star. All right, waterfowl junkies, the finisher is the quick and humane way to dispatch a duck or goose. It's uh, you know, it's unsettling when you've wrung that bird's neck, you throw it in the pile, and 10 minutes later, he's laying there flopping. Uh-uh. We don't want that. That's not ethical. And so the finisher alleviates that. You stick the finisher in the back of the bird's skull at an upward angle, give it a little twist, boom, dead instantly, never felt the thing. The finisher is only 14 bucks. It fits on any waterfowling lanyard, and you can find it at adrenal-line.com. Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway, hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Wilder Than Her is the name of that one from Fred Eaglesmith. Want to dedicate that one to my bride of 10 years as we celebrated our 10-year anniversary this past week. I don't know how the hell she's put up with me as long as she has because while calling hunting and fishing a job, I mean, there's nothing I'd rather do uh, in this world. But it takes its toll. The travel takes its toll on uh, her and our three young kids used to. Before we had kids, it was no big deal. Hey, babe, I'm I'm checking out. I'm leaving for five days. I'm going to 
you know, West Texas on a whim to hunt sandhill cranes and pheasants with a buddy. Ah, life changes, and those those uh, spur of the moment trips, no more. No, I mean she works too, so they still happen. Just have to plan life out a little bit further in advance. But anyway, she's been putting up with me uh, all this time, and God bless her for that. Uh, truly, outkicked my coverage. And on some level, it's probably a little weird to dedicate a song to someone who in 457 episodes has never listened to one minute of the Lone Star Outdoors show, uh, but <laughs> it made me feel good anyway. So thanks to Aaron for letting me call this a job. Uh, truly blessed. And thank you guys for being here as we are all set to check in with a longtime friend of the show. And on some level, I would say that he's the face of our fight to keep our public lands public. Uh, very well respected within the outdoor community. Uh, Stephen Ranella is set to join us. But first, this segment brought to you by First Light. I'm wearing the Catalyst system this whitetail season. So whether I'm in a tree stand, a pop-up blind, or just taking a walk in the woods still hunting, the Catalyst has kept me warm. It's kept me dry. It's kept the wind at bay. Uh, and here's another cool thing, and I mentioned this last week, but uh, Southerners, we're climbing cross fences. You know, you get snagged on barbed wire, dealing with feed pins all the time. And I haven't had one tear yet. So it's rugged, it's comfortable, and it's quiet. All the things that I would look for if I was designing the perfect whitetail hunting system. And you can find the catalyst by going to firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest, a longtime friend of the program. I can't remember uh, how many times he's been on the show, but it's quite a few over the years. Steve Marinella, thanks for being here, brother. Yeah, thank you for, for having me on again. Absolutely. So uh, I know you just got back from a trip. What was your uh, your latest hunting excursion? Well, I'm on a trip. Oh, right on. Um, but I also got back. Yeah, I also got back from a trip. We film a lot, you know. Obviously, like yeah. this time of year, being in the being in the hunting show business, we usually get started pretty heavy duty in August. A fair bit right now. I'm in, I'm sitting in Michigan right now, um, getting ready to go back up and climb back up in a tree. We've done over a hundred episodes of we've done over a hundred episodes of Meat Eater, and this is the first one we've ever done about archery hunting for white-tailed deer. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny to think that we would have gotten that deep, <laughs> that we would have gotten that deep into it without ever doing one. Yeah, but we're doing one now. It's crazy. But at the end of the day, I mean, I know there's pressure to, and it shouldn't be this way. But when you have a TV show, you you have to get, you have to take animals. I mean, you can't just have every show be, oh, we, we came close, we didn't get it done. I mean, people want to see the end result on some level. And my question to you would be, is that why? you a lot of times prefer to go with a firearm over a bow and arrow no early on i had to do we've done a lot of bow hunts this year like we did the archery elk hunt uh-huh. did the archery seek a deer hunt did the archery whitetail hunt it originally had to do with time you know um we're doing 16 shows a year and it's a real grind and we would have kind of like a number of a lot of days that we would do and now we've got the luxury to look, now we're able to take a little bit more time and, and, and do some of the stuff. And then a lot of the hunting, you know, I hunt and, and, you know, I hunt a lot in Alaska and we film there a fair bit now, you know, and plenty of other places too. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, kind of, you know, 
just kind of like my way of experiencing it. When I started out doing this, I remember like someone told me, this guy I was working with early on warned me that, you know, he'd be able to do a hunting show that wasn't primarily whitetails. And I guess maybe I took that as a challenge. But, <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, we've done, we've definitely have done some over, over the time, but no, I don't feel any pressure to, I don't feel any pressure to always have stuff at the end mm-hmm. of the episode. And, and we've always had a lot of episodes that, that, that do not end success. Like the season we have up, you know, we just put up a new 16 episodes that went up on Netflix. Right. And when you open that up and you watch season seven, episode one, the first thing you see is what we call a skunker which is a not successful hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and early on, we would have that when that would happen, we would be nervous about what the reception would be. But we found is kind of the opposite of what you'd think is that hunters that watch it oftentimes will applaud those episodes because it reflects a part of hunting that they know <laughs> yeah. damn sure exists, but they don't often see it portrayed. Well. Yeah. I think people get played out. I think people get kind of, I mean, some people don't. For some people, it's an exhaustible pleasure they get from it. But I think that some people get played out on watching hunting that doesn't look at all familiar with the hunting they know. And these tightly managed properties, oftentimes fenced-in properties, where people are just passing on buck after buck after buck, and then, you know, and 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 get some buck that's been captured on their trail cameras. And right, I think that people see that, and that just like, is not what a lot of people's lives are like. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that sometimes they like to see that, that there's like, you know, they like to see people struggle and like to see people not be successful. And, um, I haven't had any, you know, I haven't had any regrets about showing a lot of that on the show. Take me back to your mountain lion hunt. Um, that was the, the dry ground thing. And that was one of the ones where, uh, really kind of sparked that desire for me. It's like how, when I go, I want to do a dry ground, you know, I want to learn how the, the houndsman relates to his hounds, how he reads the track. Um, how he predicts where the cougar's going to go once he's on a track. Um, how many days did it take you? How many trips before you finally took a, a cougar? I did I did two trips to Arizona hunting dry ground, two uh-huh. trips that were a week long. You know, we would cut a lion track almost every day yeah. and run it. And then, so those are two week-long trips separated by a year. And then I went with a buddy of mine hunting in the snow up in the Idaho Panhandle, and we got a lion in three days in the snow. It's just different, man. It's a different ball game, you know. There's a reason that guys in the north just wait for the snow to fly. Oh yeah, yeah. Start hunting lions, and it, lions tend to be managed a little bit differently in the north too. But you know, like you go to a state like Montana and portions of Idaho and elsewhere, they treat mountain lions, you know, they treat mountain lions as a valued big game animal, and they manage for them with tight quotas. And there, there's some places in the Southwest that are still pretty aggressive about mountain lions and don't really treat them like a, don't really manage them like a game animal. They manage them more like a, like a varmint or non-game species. So it's just like the hunting opportunities. Oh, are, that's how it is are, in Texas, you know, you know, I mean. Yeah, the hunting opportunities are different. Yeah. I like to see them managed. I like to see them managed as big game, right? Um, I definitely like to see, I definitely like to see hunting for them, but I, but I kind of like it when they get that that treatment and respect as a, you know, as a, as a, as a big game animal. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think it's actually, it might not, you know, it might reduce availability a little bit, but I actually think it's really good for, I think it's good for lion hunting to have lions be pretty tightly managed for, well, for the long-term viability of lion hunting in general, not yeah. lion hunting. 
And so you went three times. It took me three trips to Colorado. Uh, did it dry ground, did it in the snow, and we caught two, but they were both females. And from a conservation standpoint, the the guy I was with, he was like, I don't I don't kill females. And so, and I said, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Went back, uh, and then we went in December again, and there was no snow. So we were trying to do it in in, in the snow the next time, and it was dry ground. We went to yeah. a private ranch that time, and, and a cat had killed two foals over the, like the last three months. And the rancher was like, whatever you catch, you have to kill if you want to ever come back here. Kind of like, you know, so <laughs> so that was the deal. And sure enough, first day we caught a female and he's like, well, you either can shoot it or I'll shoot it. But either way, you know, we have to take this cat. And I was like, you know, we've done 18 days over three trips over three years. I was like, I think this is fine for me. You know, there's no reason for two cats to have to get killed. Me kill, You kill this one and let's go find another one. So that seemed like the, that was my cat. And, uh. I was surprised at how how good it actually tasted, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah, they're phenomenal, man. And it's the funny thing about mountain lions is uh, a lot of people, even houndsmen, you know, they'll, a lot of people that, like, devote their lives to chasing mountain lions will get one or two mountain lions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got, you know, I got a friend that I, I don't know how many he's caught. He's caught hundreds, and he's, you know, he's treed hundreds, but he's killed a couple. Yeah. It's just like a thing that a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people really want to be around it. But it's a thing that, like, in their lifetime, you know, they want to, like, have that experience a handful of times. It's not like deer where it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're happy to hunt. You know, people, people be, like, really happy to get several deer a year, every deer for the every year for the rest of their life, you know. And I'm like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, you bring that up. He, uh, he The guy had been doing it 30 years, and he's killed one mountain lion. So just to, to your point, uh, it's not all about the <laughs> yeah. Animal. The houndsman, man, like, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by houndsmen. You know, it's just, they're just like an unusual breed of people. But oh, they yeah. like they like running, they like dogs, and they like trailing cats. You know, and it's just an interesting breed of people. Absolutely. Let, let me ask you this, because we are going to talk about the uh, the new cookbook here in a minute. Uh, but what is one thing? And, and I'll tell you mine. It's bobcat, which is is surprising. But uh, what is one thing that you put it in your mouth you're like that just is not good i should not have i shouldn't have eaten that or i shouldn't have prepared it that way because we wanted to uh kill the bobcat wanted to get the full flavor profile of the animal there might have been a couple beers involved it was pretty late in the evening and we just took the back strap out no seasoning just threw it on the grill and i'm not kidding it was the, it's the worst bite of wild game i've ever had oh see i haven't never done that but i've heard people say that it's pretty passable you know that, that people say that they liked it i you know for me one of them um I, when I was younger, I did a lot of fur trapping, and so I would catch coyotes, you know. Coyotes were just coming into western Michigan at the time. Um, you know, they were when I was a little, little kid, they were unheard of in that area, but they were coming in pretty strong. Mm. So, you know, I'd start out catching red fox, and then later, the later years, in the, right into the mid-'90s, um, early-'90s, mid-'90s, started picking up, like you'd pick up coyotes, you know, in, in fox sets. Um, and I didn't, then I didn't touch cow for a long time, but... Some years ago, we got a coyote and and cooked it, and I cooked it similar to how they, how the how in Vietnam how they prepared domestic dog in Vietnam. I, I cooked it in that fashion, and man, I just like didn't like it, you know. It was like <laughs> I remember that episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't good, you know. It just wasn't good. My friend, my buddy, he Remy, he was saying that it tasted like how he thought it tasted like bad diver duck, you know. Uh. Um, and so, you know, I've never touched another coyote since then, man. I've never touched a coyote since then. And it often gets me in trouble. Like, if I'll be hunting a buddy's place with them or something, you know, like I was 
in Wisconsin with a buddy of mine, and we're doing a little deer drive on his farm. And I later told him how a couple coyotes came through, and he was floored, you know, that I didn't that I didn't kill the coyotes that came <laughs> through on his farm. But I was like, man, I just got a thing where I'm not going to touch them anymore. You know, I don't want to eat them. Yeah. And and you know, I don't want to eat them, and I don't want you know, and and really. You know, that type of coyote control, just like the sort of random coyote control, really doesn't do anything to curb predation. I mean, if you're going to do that, it takes a very concerted, prolonged effort if you're actually going to move the needle in that direction. And I think that me now and then shooting a coyote uh, isn't really doing anything. You know, I don't yeah. think it's like it's it's not like upping the whitetail population. I mean, if you look at any kind of the research around it. So as much as I you know, have absolutely no problem with coyote hunting, absolutely no problem with coyote trapping, after cooking one and having like a real, just finding the flesh kind of off-putting, I personally have, uh, you know, I've just like, I've, I'm in a peace treaty with coyotes right now. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it was uh, it was one of your podcasts with, with Dan uh, Flores, who I, I believe was your professor back in the day when I, I took a class with him when i was in graduate school yeah 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 very he had like a really profound uh impact on me as a writer when i took his class because it was punishing man it was punishing i've mm. never worked so hard <laughs> i've got a i've got one of those guys that was in sports broadcasting uh doing high school football we had to go on friday nights and do high school football record ourselves with a tape tape recorder and freezing your ass off sitting in the stands doing play-by-play to yourself and then uh, that guy was—he was the same kind of dude, you know, just grind on your ass. Uh, but he's a legend. But uh, but but that was interesting to hear you say because Dan is very much to the you know the school of thought that if you kill a coyote, you're really not doing anything. But you did say, which I I agree that if you really focus on it and, and manage for it, especially I believe on like smaller properties, you you can absolutely make a difference on the the coyote population. Oh, especially if you ti- especially if your timing, you know, I mean, just I mean, this is something anybody can go research. Yeah, if you're if you're timing it well, right, it, it does seem that you can have an impact. But but doing – if you're trying to, like, you know, if you're trying to help out deer recruitment as fawns are hitting the ground in May, uh, doing a lot of coyote work in November is probably not doing you any good. Mm-hmm. But but doing coyote work in April and May could possibly do you some good. I mean, there's tons – this isn't, like, my research. It's right. just, you know, things that are out there and people look at it a lot. But – you know, there's also a lot of stuff suggesting that just doing, you know, kind of like willy-nilly now and then uh, killing a coyote thinking you're going to stop, you know, turkey and deer predation or whatever. It just doesn't seem there's a lot of evidence to back it up. You know, yeah. I think it's something that has to be that you need to take a you need to take some scientific precision to it if you want to move the needle on that stuff. Absolutely. Well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, come back, and uh, get into the book. Sound good? Perfect. All right, and that segment was brought to you by Iota Outdoors. Y'all have seen the pictures of my Horizon 7 mag. It's got that uh, unmistakable Iota Crux rifle stock. And the reason why I love the Crux is because it weighs 27 ounces. And when you when you hunt on the move, as much as I like to, uh, every ounce is paramount, especially on backcountry hunts. So if you're looking for a lightweight, precision rifle stock, check out IOTA Outdoors. Of course, they've got a full lineup of rifle stocks there as well. I'm just partial to their crux. You can find it at iotaoutdoors.com. We'll be right back with more from Stephen Ranella. You are listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Grab a snake, 
County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Have you been looking for new and innovative products in the shooting industry? Then check out IOTA. Their scope rings and stocks are second to none, especially with their patented zero light and key lock technology. Based right here in Texas, check them out at iotaoutdoors.com or call 979-229-4664. IOTA Outdoors, inspiring innovation for hunting and shooting. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Damn love couldn't go no further. Proud of that disgusted by her. Push on the little bruise that battered. Hold on, I ain't coming home with you. My life's a bit more colder. That's the music of the Dead South. In hell, I'll be in good company, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you, guys and gals, for being here this week. I do appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in. Hope y'all are having a great whitetail season. Uh, waterfowl season's in full swing. If you're chasing ducks or geese, man, hope you've got a good four-legged friend and some buddies to enjoy that time in the blind together. Or hell, hey, maybe you're. Chasing pheasants or quail or cottontail, who knows? Tons of stuff out there to be pursuing in the great outdoors. And God forbid, if you're one of those diehard bass fishermen that's out there in 30-degree weather, I got mad respect for you. I love fishing, but that is not a cold-weather activity for me. Uh, I'd rather be hunting. And once Tim swarm up in the springtime, you'll see me with a rod and reel, no doubt about it. Whatever you're doing, I hope that you're having a great week and a great season. This segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I am a longtime member. I'd love to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of outdoorsmen and women who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, that's educating the public on why we do what we do, and also, of course, conservation. To get plugged in, check us out at biggame.org. Well, let's pick it back up with our current guest, longtime friend of the show, Stephen Ranella, the meat eater. Uh, Thanks for sticking around. Yeah, no problem, man. So obviously we're both huge proponents of keeping our public lands public, um, like elk hunting over the last, I think I've been six seasons, and it's very quickly become my absolute favorite thing to do, Uh, and that's always on public land. don't get to do it quite as much as you, you know, from, uh, you have the luxury of Alaska. I'm so jealous of that, uh, especially, but we, we just got through these midterm elections and, and I want to ask you, you know, where do you, how do you, when you come to that crossroad of public land versus second amendment, um, how do you decide where to vote? And I mean, you know, because in Texas it's, uh, we've got Ted Cruz who I had on the show. I, I backed him 
but he agrees with uh, he agrees with Mike Lee out of Utah that you know state lands or, or federal lands should be transferred to state control, which I am 100% opposed to. But at the same time, we have this guy who's ran against him, Beto, who had a F rating with the NRA, and had basically said, you know, we're coming for your guns. So how do you draw that line? And how do we as sportsmen and gun owners walk that line? How do you weigh it? You know, it's 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 difficult, man. I, you know, it's like that's why I tend to. It's hard to go along the party line, you know. Yeah. Um, when I say it's hard to go along the party line, it's hard. It's hard to predict how people's stances are going to be. There's plenty of Republicans out there who value public lands. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean I'm one of them. Some yeah. who are like, yes. There's there's some of them who are who are like very much opposed to them. Often from a often because of just a general perspective about the place of the federal government. Um, and so I think that you can look and find people, you know, hopefully you can look and find politicians that generally mirror your perspectives. And I think that people can also be moved on it. Right. We had, you know, we had a hotly contested Senate race where I live in Montana and, um, and the, the Republican candidate there for Senate was, you know, instinctively, uh, seemed to be, you know, opposed to federally managed public lands. But when you listen to the, his potential, who he want, who he was hoping to, be his constituents. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, "Man, the, you know, the overwhelming majority of Montanans like their public lands. So, in deference to that overwhelming public opinion, I'm going to have their back on the issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's all talk, right? You don't know how they're actually going to play. And he would still surround himself with people, and you know, he would surround himself with people who are openly hostile to public lands, and people who are openly hostile to public lands would campaign for him. But." Um, you know, that's just like one case where you see that it's it's more complicated than just along party lines. But no, I don't really like to entertain. You know, I, people invite you to do it, and even my own like colleagues invite me to do it to entertain this idea of like the Sophie's Choice situation where you had to choose between one and the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I don't really, I haven't really viewed the world that way. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me do this. Uh, me... My thing is that, like my thing like like anything else, I guess, would wind up being that. Um, you know, you would hope that you'd find someone, I guess it's, it's finding someone who you agree with 51% of what they say, yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, which, which is, you know, regardless of where I'm looking at it, either side of the aisle, man, it's hard to do that. Right. I just don't like, I have a lot of opinions that don't fall along party lines. It makes it complicated. I think that most people do, right. Mm-hmm. You have tons of influences on you. You have tons of influences. Yeah. Um, I would like to see this the, the attacks on public lands i'd like to see it wind down i mean you know we had you know uh, from the, the president his interior secretary all these people have came in and said that um that they're not looking to strip away federally managed public lands where we hunt and fish yeah. so it's not it's it's certainly you can certainly have that perspective and still win elections yeah well let's make one thing very clear is that the states don't want the land unless they can benefit from it. So all these people saying, oh, you know, and people are like, I hate big government. Let the states control it. The, the states aren't going to do anything with it unless they can profit off of it. Uh, they don't want the financial burden of running all of those all of those places. It's, it's expensive to upkeep. So unless they can frack it, mine it, log it, sell it off to the private sector, I mean, I, I don't see why the hell they would want it. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. That's kind of or largely right, and that's kind of the crux of the issue here. Um, and, you know, I'm a big proponent of state management of wildlife because states have, you know, they have a mandate and they have a long history in this country, well, pretty long now, of doing a phenomenal job managing wildlife. 
but there's you know different jobs require different tools and in this country the for, for the national forest and bureau of land management lands and national wildlife refuge lands the the the, the federal agencies have like a really good toolkit for managing large tracts of open lands that are open to hunting and fishing. It's mm-hmm. just, is that they're equipped to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not like if, if we were starting from scratch, right. And we were designing this whole new country all over again from scratch, maybe we would lay it out a different way. But at a point you have to look at like, what are the systems we have set up and who's enjoying success doing it? Yeah. And, and then you have to kind of reinforce that idea. Um, but a lot of people think like there's a contradiction from liking state management of wildlife and then liking, you know, federal management of, you know, existing national forest lands and Bureau of Land Management lands, but I just don't see it as a contradiction. Mm-hmm. No, I don't either at all. Uh, when I first became aware of you, it was through this other show. I'm going to play this uh, little bit of audio here because it goes back a ways. How many of them are aware of, of this? This is Stephen Ranella, host of the travel channel The Wild Within, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. That one goes back a minute. Yeah, man, from <laughs> 2009, maybe 2010. Yeah. So, when does that come up very often? And, and do, do the majority of of the meat eater fans even know that that show existed? Because my wife and I used to watch that together. You know, pre kids. Oh, you know, I hear it. about. We only made eight episodes, man. Yeah. Um, and and they're not available anywhere. You know, those uh-huh. networks kind of bury their mistakes. You know. So it's like, it's just, yeah, people know about it. I hear about it all the time. Yeah. I certainly remember it. Yeah. I like what I'm doing right now. I have a lot better than I like doing that. I can tell you that. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, you know, it's funny about like having a career, you know, it's like things lead to things, you know, like opportunities come up and new opportunities fall in their place. And so to me, it was kind of like a, it was like a stepping stone to do the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and it seems like now you guys are taking over the world. I, I see like almost every week you've got, uh, some new content provider that have joined up uh, with the uh, Meat Eater team. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's always been the goal of mine for you know a long time. It's been a goal of mine to expand Meat Eater out and have it be something beyond me, you know. And so I've, I've now have the opportunity to do that, and we're building out, you know, a, a building out kind of a full fledged media company in the hunting, fishing, culinary, and conservation spaces and so working with a lot of other people that I've, you know, developed friendships with and relationships over the years to, you know, do everything from, you know, podcasting, television shows, written material, um, live events, right? So mm-hmm. just getting, you know, getting more getting more involved in outdoor media and doing it, you know, doing it in more ways. I think that basically anything that that, that anything I'm doing now in terms of types of content now. Um, I think people can expect us to see a lot more of it coming from us and then some new things as well. Right on. Did you ever think people would pay an admission ticket to hear a bunch of dudes just sit there and talk about hunting? Yeah, I didn't think about it. By the time I got to thinking about it, I thought that they would, but I had never <laughs> thought about it prior to, I never had thought about it prior to, to actually going for it. But I was surprised by the reception of it. You know, we put up, when we did our first live podcast tour, we put up VIP tickets for sale, and they were gone in 24 hours. And I was, I thought, like, holy shit, I can't believe that this is working. But it wound up being, it's, it's a ton of fun, man, and we're, we're going to do a bunch more of them. But no, I was a little bit surprised. You know, I approach everything with an amount of caution, but I didn't think it was outlandish. 
Uh-huh. But, you know, if you follow the kind of, if you follow the landscape, like we hardly invented live podcasts, right? There's some pioneers who figured that stuff out. Um, you know, some people figured it out and, and proved that there was a way to do it and that there was an audience for such things. All we did was just make it like a, you know, all we did was approach a, a different audience with an idea that was already a proven concept, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, everybody, anybody can have a podcast now. Uh, when I started the show nine years ago, it was just a little old show on the radio, you know, one FM station in Dallas, and it, it's grown from there. But when everyone started coming out with podcasts, I was like, it, me personally, I was like, man, this is going to be bad for me. It's going to make things so much more competitive. But it's been the exact opposite. Um, you know, from a sponsorship standpoint, it's you're able to uh, you're able to deliver the content to people who don't wake up at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning to listen to the radio, uh, just, you know, generally mm-hmm. speaking. Uh, and so I think for our entire hunting and fishing industry, uh, I think it's been an absolutely phenomenal thing. Yeah, I used to be afraid of new new you know mediums coming out, man. But now I just welcome them. You know, I've been talking about the same stuff for my entire career, right? Yeah, and I've just done it in a ton of different ways. You know, glossy magazines, um, not glossy magazines, <laughs> podcasting, television you know, online material. It's just, right. It's just, I used to always be afraid of what was going to happen next, but now I kind of like, don't really care what comes up next. I just have a feeling I'll probably still be talking about the same stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll be doing it that way. Right. We're yeah. telling Martians about it instead. Right. Well, let's talk, let's talk about something new. Let's talk about the meat eater fishing game cookbook. Uh, I think it, isn't it coming out this month? It comes out real soon, man. But it doesn't even really matter. You can just go buy it now, right? It's yeah. called, yeah, the Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook, Recipes and Techniques for Every Hunter and Angler. And the book's broken up into a, a bunch of sections. And so it has, uh, you know, big game, like horned and antlered game, and then, you know, as well as black bears and wild pigs are all rolled in the big game. And it has small game, so that's like your furred small game, rabbits, hares, squirrels, up, there's an upland bird chapter, a waterfowl chapter, freshwater fish chapter, saltwater fish chapter, shellfish and crustaceans chapter, and then a reptiles and amphibians chapter, which is mighty short. But it covers everything from processing um, and lots of, like, detailed information on how to approach and think about different species of game, how to do, like, substitutions for everything. And then, you know, 100 brand-new, you know, original, very, like, highly tested, well-photographed recipes, and then a lot of butchering information. I mean, you just open it up and, and you, you get into like upland birds and waterfowl and it has everything from like how to, you know, all the different ways of cutting birds from, from spatchcocking to breasting to like pulling off boneless breasts with bone and thighs, how to pull tendons out of bird legs so you, have, you, you get a better drumstick experience. Um, it, it's really everything, man. It's, like, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a huge, very comprehensive guidebook for anyone who spends time dealing with and thinking about wild game. Uh, you know, we spent years working on this thing, and I'm really proud of it. It, wound up, it. it turned out beautifully. And, yeah, and you can order anywhere you can find books right now. Um, you can go on Amazon and pick it up there, and uh, it'll ship to you within a week. So it must be difficult to, I don't want to say reinvent yourself, um, because you've put out cookbooks previously. Uh, yeah, we did, been... we did a thing called the, uh, the Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game, Volumes 1 and 2. Uh-huh. But they had a lot of technical hunting information in it. And this is our first, like, fully dedicated wild game cookbook. What, what is it like, you know, because I put a lot of my recipes uh, up on social media. 
obviously in, in the website and uh but a lot of times you're sitting there and you're taking these damn pictures and all I want to do is eat the food I'm sure that's magnified times 10 when you're trying to get something to present in a in an actually published cookbook yeah we always eat it though <laughs> you know when we were film when we we're photographing recipes man we dig in because we got a big crew of people standing around helping out with the pictures you know so we get through it we get through it all pretty good but it was fun like the first thing we started working on long ago was just collecting the processing images because you'll find out a you'll learn how to cut up everything from a bullfrog to mahi-mahi in this book, right? And it took a long time to get that all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Great Christmas idea. I certainly do appreciate the time, my friend. It's, like I said, been a while, but always great to visit with you. Where are you? Uh, let's see, you're, you're Michigan hunting whitetails with a stick and string right now. Where are you off to after that? Yep. I'm going to, well, I'm going to go home. Um, I'm going to go home. We're doing a book, a cookbook launch party day after tomorrow in Bozeman. And so I'm going to get home for that. And then uh, head back out. Probably do, you know, probably do a little more hunting. I'm gonna be hunting with my kids over Thanksgiving. That'll be fun. But yeah, right now I'm gonna go climb up into a tree and try to try to figure this out. <laughs> how old, how old are the kids now? The archery. I have a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Has the eight-year-old taken any uh, big game animals? No, man. We won't start till he's ten. Okay. In Montana, you gotta be ten years old, you That's know, right. to start hunting. And, like, he's been exposed to a lot and done some small gaming in other states where they don't, you know, it's done some small gaming in states where you're allowed to hunt with your parents. But, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with 10. I think sure. that's pretty good. He's been exposed to a lot of hunting. He's been exposed to a lot of fishing. But I want to get him. I'd, I'd like to get, have him get some experiences under his belt and get some perspective. Mm-hmm. We'll start. We'll hit some youth seasons when he turns 10. I'm pretty excited about it. But I was curious. Know, my not, son uh, about to be six, and I just took him. And we had our Texas rifle opener for Whitetail. And so it was his first, you know, he wasn't shooting. He's still BB gun status, but uh, yeah, he saw me shoot a buck and saw the, you know, gutting it, field dressing it, and and uh, the whole process. So he, he kind of, he, he soaked it all in. I got a picture of him holding the heart. He I mean, he was all hands on deck, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I've so. gotten that all. Yeah, I never, I'm not shy about that stuff. I hear a lot of parents talk about wanting to wait to expose their kids to stuff. Man, I, I never did. Yeah. Um, You know, but like shooting themselves, I think, you know. You, every parent, you're gonna be, every parent's gonna find their own way to be comfortable with it, right? I think mm-hmm. as long as you're thinking about it, there's probably not a wrong answer if you're putting some thought into it. But just for for my family and and the way you know the decisions we've made around it, um, we're just playing with like unlimited exposure, right? Mm-hmm. You know, no holds barred, whatever. I just like them to see the whole thing. But I think when they hit ten, we'll, you know, they can they can go after big game if it's what they want to do, and it seems like, and if the moment it seems like the right thing for the for the child the specific child so right right i think i want it to be where he asks if he can shoot a buck you know yeah that's that's probably a great approach man well right on man well hey y'all check out the book the meat eater fish and game cookbook is available now and uh steve we certainly appreciate the time brother thanks a lot man thanks for having me on so there he goes the meat eater steven ranella always great visiting with him uh which like you said from that wild within clip i think our first visit was 2000 10 maybe so a long time a lot of things have changed for the better that's for sure that segment of the presentation was brought to you by lone star beer the national beer of texas and rudy's true texas style barbecue where you can stop in after the hunt for breakfast lunch or dinner rudy's true texas style barbecue Uh, we'll be right back with some crazy stuff that has happened to me on my oklahoma lease might even read a few of your lease Orlando owner horror stories that y'all posted on our Facebook page 
What's the worst or craziest thing that's ever happened to you in a private land situation? I'll tell you mine next, right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Nothing makes a memory that you'll take with you all your life Like a damn good Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800 9 Go hunt or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Yeah, that's sport and cheap labor, but that's a Texas creed. And them boys out here in Texas got some damn fine weed. Yeah, them boys from Oklahoma roll that John's out around. They're too damn skinny, way too long. Well, I ain't a holy roller, so I just use a bomb. Boys from Oklahoma, a little cross-Canadian ragweed, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you today as we're about to head up to Oklahoma and hear a, uh, my dealings with some of those boys from Oklahoma, which have not been pleasant, but they do have some damn fine hunting up there. I don't know about the joints. Uh, anyway, before we get into my personal hell... <laughs> that I've been living in for the last two weeks. This segment of the show is brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. What you need on your dealies? Well, hopefully I can still get mine off of my Oklahoma place, but uh, I have or had up there a 600-pound stand-in fill and a big chingone. That's the most convenient feeder you'll ever find. Best design, you just stand there and fill it. No more ladders, no more backing your truck up next to it. And the big chingone, well... Henry and I absolutely love that thing. It's like the Taj Mahal of deer blinds. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. With that being said, you know, I've been hunting this place in Oklahoma. Uh, this is our fourth season now, me and three other guys, good friends. And three of us, primarily Bow Hunt, uh, my friend Jeff's dad, um, he's a little older and is a rifle hunter only. And this was going to be his first deer season ever. So anyway, we've shot uh, some nice bucks out there. The biggest one being a 142-inch eight-point that I killed two years ago. And it's a great property, 930 acres. We pay about $10 an acre, somewhere in there for it. So you do the math. It's an expensive lease. Not the most expensive, but uh, definitely a financial commitment on our part. And currently, uh, the Oklahoma bow season runs uh, basically like the Texas season, October through mid-January. 
Uh, they do have a two-week rifle season, which opens this weekend. November 17th runs for two weeks. That's it. Your only chance to hunt with a rifle in Oklahoma. And uh, so anyway, I'm up there last week. Get there late Tuesday night. I'm going to hunt all day Wednesday and then come home. Uh, as Aaron had to work on Thursday. Get to the gate, let myself in with my key. I dummy lock the lock, as I always do when I come to the property. It lets the landowner know that I'm there. And uh, I go up to my deliciously crappy trailer. No electricity, no running water. It's just how I like it. Have have a couple pulls off the old jug of brown water and hit the sack. Wake up the next day. Well, actually, I pulled my memory cards that night. That was And, and I had two giant bucks. I'm not kidding you. I uh, haven't put them out there on social media yet because I'm still trying to get the right to hunt on my property that I leased. What? Okay, so hunt Wednesday morning. Had texted my landowner that I was going to go you know, eat lunch with him, say hi on Wednesday midday. I drive to the gate of my pasture to let myself out, and there's a new lock on it. The old one's gone. I obviously don't have a key to this one. I'm like, what in the hell is going on? I call Mark. Hey, man, did you change the locks? I'm in here. Nope, didn't change them. I'll be right down there. He shows up with bolt cutters, cuts the lock, lets me out, and then informs me that he sold the property and it closed on November 1st. Well, he also says he has 60 days to get off the property. Okay, Mark. Well, you know what? That makes me now a tenant of the new landowner, if this is in fact true, which I have no idea. I didn't even know he was selling the place. Um, 75 years old. He's a cancer survivor, and he's got 100 horses on the property. He told me that he was thinking about selling it like three years ago. Uh, but this is news to me. Meanwhile, I'm just like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go back and hunt. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, you're telling me I can stay. So I hunt that afternoon. And uh, while I'm hunting, my friend Jeff's, da uh, Jeff's dad, Papa Barstead, shows up to fill his feeders. And there is a unholy mess going on at my landowner's house between him and the new owner. She's telling him to get the hell off of her property. He's telling her he has time. And meanwhile, the electricity company shows up, cuts the power off to his house that he lives in with his wife. And <laughs> it's like, I'm getting all of this through a text while I'm sitting in the stand. And I'm like, I better just get the hell out of here. I, I don't even know if I have the right to hunt here. So meanwhile, that landowner left. Um, I did get her, her phone number from Papa Barstead. Call her, and she is not ticked at me she was mad because my landowner didn't tell her that he even had hunters leasing the property um, so she had put padlocks on all four pasture gates to the property which he went and cut which made her that much matter she's calling him a squatter this that and the other and this is all secondhand from jeff's dad papa barstead so i call her that night and tell her the situation tell her we've been on there now for our fourth season tell her what we pay for the place and she says yeah y'all can stay but my cousin and I, apparently he's the money behind the thing, and uh, he had a big Kansas farm owner. And Anyway, um, they said, yeah, we just want the money, all of it, because we've had this thing under contract since last spring, which pissed me off even more because last spring is when I wrote the check. So my landowner took the money, knowing that the thing was under contract, and here we are. Prime of the rut is approaching, and we've only got that two-week window to gun hunt in Oklahoma. Uh, only one of the four of us has tagged out on their buck this year uh, with archery tackle, and we're all looking forward to it. Got some nice deer on camera, like I said. And now we don't know if we even have a place to hunt. 
So I agree to meet the new landowner, who's a fiery little Oklahoma gal. She's a grandmother, probably in her 50s, and boy, she talks a big game, and I have a feeling she, she can back it up too, the way she was talking about her dealings with the previ- my former landlord. She shows me the deed to the property, closed on November 1st, and, and I tell her that we'd love to give her that money that we paid our former landlord, uh, but unless... He gives it back to us. They, I mean, we're not going to be out that much cash. It's it's just not financially possible. And so she says, you know what? I'll let you hunt this weekend, and then we'll we'll try to figure it out. You're already up here. So I hunt Saturday, sitting in my blind Saturday afternoon, and, and for the first time in my life, I had to get out of the stand and just I, – I left. I went home. I was like this – I felt so disgusted by the whole situation. Like, did she really want me there? I felt used by the previous landowner who is still squatting. And at this point, uh, with his electricity off, he's now gotten a generator, my generator, out of his barn that I used for my trailer, and he's running his house on that. So the whole situation is just getting worse. And I'm like, you know what? I'm out of here. As much as I want to kill one of these deer, my mind is not in the right place. I just So I went home, hung out with the family, tried to just take a a breath and get away from the whole situation, knowing that on Monday I was going to have to deal with it again. And so I, I threatened, I, I called my landowner, former landowner's attorney and said, look, I'm going to sue him for the full amount. Even though it's a year long lease, I don't want a prorated BS offer. I want all of our money back because of the fact that he knew that it was under contract and that we're only here during deer season anyway. And I'm going to sue him for fuel, feed, and time. So you can take that number that we pay him and you could double it. And that's what we're going to sue him for unless he offers to give us a refund, which he has uh, over, let's just call it $2 million in the bank based off of what he sold the property to. So I know he has the money. His lawyer advised him to do that. And I relayed the message to the new landowner. And she said, you know what? I'll give you guys a key. Y- y'all can go ahead and finish out the season. If And I, you know, I'll let you hunt this weekend. And I trust you to give me that check. So right now, that is where it stands. I'm waiting on a check from the bank. We'll see if my previous landlord follows through with that um i'd give it about 50 50 odds i don't know but that is where it's at worst situation i've ever been in as far as leasing land goes uh the folks out there who own their own land i am insanely jealous and uh, yeah and i love public land too and that's the beauty of of public land hunting yeah you have to deal with other hunters but you know that land is your land fortunately down in the south those uh, opportunities just aren't as common as uh, some of the the western states out there that's why i love to go to them (laughs) but uh anyway y'all posted some interesting stuff on my facebook page this week i'm going to read a couple of these here one that uh really stands out from jared clark myself and two friends put an ad in the shopper here in grayson county they basically found 60 acres to lease for 1800 bucks which grayson county has some monsters y'all know that so they pounced on it they had pictures of a couple bucks, a dandy 10-point that was in the 180s. He says, Honest Abe, it was just an absolute giant. And then another non-typical freak that was on its last season, probably. Two Saturdays before the bow opener, he went to check his feeders and pulled pictures one last time. Finds out that there are horses all over the property, which in the contract agreed no livestock, uh, no livestock was to be put on the place. As he's driving up to his second and third stand, he finds a deer carcass on the edge of a stock pond 
Its head had been removed, and by the distinct scar on its right flank, he knew it was the giant ten point, most likely poached by an oil field worker. Needless to say, the landowner refused to move the horses, and <laughs> they didn't get their money back because it was only eighteen hundred bucks. It wasn't worth worth the cost of litigation. So, there's a horror story. Uh, James Hayes writes, I once had a lease in Starr County back in the late 70s. We'd find empty rifle brass in our blinds, empty shot shells near our feeders, and buttonless peyote cactus everywhere. He, along with his hunting partners, worked then and only hunted the weekends, but it appeared the landowner's kinfolk sure didn't. When confronted, the landowner claimed poachers were hunting it and not family members. The poachers must have had keys to the gates. (laughs) The peyote harvesters, however, were a group of hippie trespassers who hadn't made it out of the 1960s. Sorry about you, James. That is truly a mess as well. It was a mess. A longtime listener, Shane Cardwell, writes in, Big Lake, Texas, went in the spring to check it out. Tracks absolutely everywhere. Few deer took it. Fast forward to season. The neighbor had huge green wheat fields. He also had depredation permits and shot tons of deer. Every brown spot he saw. Not one deer was seen after he started shooting. Before that, so another deal, he had a lease that had some good deer. Second weekend, they stopped seeing deer, like zero. After checking feeders, everyone came back with a similar story. Old blood and hair, etc. Third week, one of the guys took vacation and showed up midweek. The cabin was full of hunters. He was day leasing it, and when we weren't there, every stand and feeder, our feeders, were being used and hunted all day. Every day, all week. <laughs> that is absolutely terrible. Uh, Jason Baird writes in, had a buddy, Lisa Place. I went with him to take a look. It was a great place full of whitetail and axis. Opening weekend, they shot four axis, and they got a visit by the game warden. They had no right to be on the place, and the guy that leased it was a con man. All the animals got taken as well, and they had to pay restitution. Wow. Some terrible stuff here. Uh, Kyle Lewis says, we leased a property from an individual who didn't have the rights. We found out the night before when the landowner showed up to ask us what we're doing. We had put stands and feeders in a camper up several weeks prior to this, of course. Luckily, he was sympathetic because his cousin, who leased it, was a crook. He made him bring the money. We paid him and then proceeded to beat his ass right there in front of us. (laughs) We did get to hunt it for that year. Uh, So at least a happy ending. I mean, it might have been worth the price just to see the guy get his ass whipped uh but that's the deal man uh you never know what's going to go on with a lease some people have them for 20 years and have a great relationship with their landowner hell i thought we had a great relationship with our landowner turns out he was as crooked as they come nice guy to your face but at the end of the day he'll take your check and say sorry about you in a heartbeat um so if i had the money whoo i'd call lone star ad credit right now like yesterday get my own place uh, maybe someday that'll work out but uh, like i said it's certainly jealous of all you guys and gals who do have your own property that is living the life for the rest of us peasants <laughs> we'll just keep playing the lease game i guess and uh, hope to avoid situations like the one i'm in currently i'll let you know how it plays out unfortunately just looking at the clock here we got to go got to get the hell out of here we are flat out of time for today Thanks to all of our guests. Uh, let's see, Stephen Ranella and Captain Lynn Gerard. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Without their support, we wouldn't be here. Thanks to you guys and gals for stopping by and being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, wear your safety harness and have a great
great week in the outdoors. When I'm gone, I'll be remembered as a working man that put his point across. With a right hand full of knuckles, cause today I show old Oni who's the boss.